he talked about his his childhood, you know, how he ended up becoming committed jihadist, you know, and how he viewed the West, how he viewed the U.S., how he viewed, you know, other Islamic groups in the world. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio is Dan DeLuce, Foreign Policy's Chief National Security Correspondent. And joining us on the phone is Ali Yunus, a reporter for Al Jazeera English, currently in Doha. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. In 2011, in the raid that killed al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden, U.S. Navy SEALs collected computer equipment and thumb drives with hundreds of thousands of pages of information about the terrorist group and its leader. But earlier this month, the CIA released more than 470,000 additional files collected at bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. This latest release, which includes a wide collection of memes and GIFs and audio files, also includes documents that appear to bolster claims that Iran helped al-Qaeda in the years following the September 11th terrorist attacks. Helping us comb through this information, much of which is in Arabic, is Ali Yunus, who's been publishing on this issue. His first article, CIA Secret Diary Offers Insight into Bin Laden's Mind, provides insights into the diary that Bin Laden kept in the years following September 11th. So, Ali, can you start by talking about the article that you published just a couple days ago on CIA secret diary offering insights into bin Laden's mind? What has been your approach to going through this latest release of the tranche of documents? What are you focusing on and what new things does it tell us about Osama bin Laden and about al-Qaeda? Well, Sharon, uh, as you mentioned, the latest release by the CIA is so extensive. I think I downloaded so far 256 gigabyte of data from that dump by the CIA. It's it's very extensive, but also it's a, a varied and wide. So uh, but it started off with, with Bin Laden diary, secret diary, in which he recorded his thoughts on the current events that were happening in 2011 and later on, uh, before 2011, obviously, but early 2011, before, you know, his demise and uh, him being targeted by the CIA and end up being killed. In addition to that, there were so many documents that covered bin Laden collections of readings, you know, so I, so that gave me an idea about his readings, what he was reading in terms of uh, what's going on in the Middle East, uh, latest theological issues, Islamic law, uh, readings of other scholars, or debating or exchanging letters with other scholars, and also historic documents on uh, events that uh, prior to September 11 and after September 11. And, you know, what happened before that and how the planning went and, you know, issues about uh, certain people and organizational material about his al-Qaeda and what's going on in the far-flung locations of al-Qaeda. So, but on the, uh, my, my piece in Al Jazeera English, you know, aljazeera.com, I talked about strictly about his diary. What I found about the diary, you know, first thing I noticed that uh, it was written, the handwriting was different in a lot of pages. So I figured it was one of his son at the time, this son or that son, Khaled or Abdullah or, or Becker or, you know, whoever was writing, maybe himself. I don't know for sure, but I'm sure it was different handwriting. And this diary, it isn't sort of speaks, when people think of a diary, you, you think about, you know, your intimate thoughts or, you know, some secret stuff that she was not shared with the public. This diary was it was more came across to me as a commentary about the current events. So wait, just just to ask, it's a diary or it's sort of a professional log? Because if it's different handwriting, is it really Bin Laden's diary or a collection of people's? 
No, it's it's Bilal's diary, but the way it was written, you know, his son was writing for him, you know, and instead of Bin Laden like writing himself, like he before he went to bed, he was writing his thoughts about what happened during the day, you know, it was just sort of like on record Bin Laden thoughts. It was his thoughts, his ideas, but the writers or the scribes, if you will, were his sons or maybe himself at one point. But I know because in the in the Arabic, you know, he was being asked question. You know, so obviously someone else was writing. Presumably it was his sons, because he was living with him, you know, in the compound in Abu Tabad. So, so the diary, you know, was dissecting what's going on at the time of the uh, the Arab Spring, what's going on in Libya. And he goes on details, talk about Libya. He went in details, talk about Yemen, talk about Saudi Arabia, talk about Egypt, Tunisia. So that was the things were going on in the Arab world. The Arab world was in upheavals all over the place. So Bin Laden was part and parcel of that. You know, he gave his opinion on many of these things. And also, so he he talked about his his childhood, you know, how he ended up becoming committed jihadist, you know, and how he viewed the West, how he viewed the U.S., how he viewed, you know, other Islamic groups in the world. So that's basically is the was the diary all about. You know, let's turn to Dan for a second. It's interesting how these documents have been released and sort of both the order and especially this tranche, which weren't just released publicly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So so obviously all these things get very politicized. So the Obama administration released a different tranche of documents, which left out these details about how members of al-Qaeda and members of bin Laden's family were in Iran and sort of receiving some element of protection. They weren't actually free to move either. There, it, was, it was something between house arrest and protection. But that was something I think the Obama administration maybe didn't want to call attention to. Because they were in the middle of negotiating the JCPOA with Iran, the nuclear deal. That's right, agreement. the nuclear deal. And why encourage the idea that there's some link between al-Qaeda and Iran of course, on the other side, on the right wing, they like to probably overstate whatever dealings al-Qaeda had with Iran. And so I think it's in the Trump administration's interest to release some of these documents now at a time when they are threatening to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, at a time when they are speaking in a pretty belligerent fashion about the Iran regime. So this is a way to kind of tarnish Iran, right, as Congress is thinking about how to handle the nuclear agreement. I would like to ask Ali what comes out in these documents about bin Laden's thinking about the Iran regime and al-Qaeda's relationship with, with it. I would be interested in that. Well, you know, I'm glad you asked me that question because this uh, this is my next piece is going to be about <laughs> al-Qaeda and Iran. <laughs> you know, because I've, you know, this is even, I, I've written this piece by and large so far before the bin Laden diary piece article. So, you know, I've talked to people, Al-Qaeda members, senior ones, who were in Iran and who left Iran. So I got first-hand information, and I've talked to people who were there and left and went to Syria. But in the documents, for example, I've read, this is not in the diary, Bin Laden was instructing his son to move from Afghanistan to Pakistan to Bishawar, Pakistan. This was written in Arabic, instructions to his son. And he told him, you have to go to this uh, take this route, you meet with this with this person, and he provides you with a new identity in Pakistan. Pakistans will ask for identities, but it's easier to get a fake one. And he told them, your, na- your name from now on is Ahmad Khan in Pakistan until you reach Iran. So, and, but the way it was described to me, other than the documents, 
from people who were there. So people were they were debating whether to go to Iraq or Iran. This is after after September 11th. They were fleeing. They were they were shocked that the U.S. actually invaded Afghanistan and destroyed them, destroyed Al Qaeda, and destroyed the Taliban regime. So they ended up going to Iran. So bear in mind that al-Qaeda is an extreme Sunni organization that view the Shia, Iran, as a heretics and as an enemy before other, you know, that you have to fight before fighting the external enemy. So, so they went to Iran. And the way it was described to me by people personally, um, that the Iranian people, by and large, they didn't mind. They saw them, you know, maybe perhaps as fellow Muslims and maybe a hero because they stood up to the U.S. Remember, this is before the invasion of Iraq. And when they went to Iran, they spread out in Iran. So they weren't welcome in a sense that they were not the guest of the state, but they were allowed to come in. They were provided protection in a sense. They are in a safe haven of sort. But they were not, like you said, in between house arrest and a protection. They were allowed to move around. They were allowed to make, make phone calls. But some of the Al-Qaeda people, and this was told to me personally, some of the Al-Qaeda people like took advantage of that. They set up satellite in the desert. They started communicating with their Al-Qaeda members you know, in Algeria and Libya, so made the Iranians get embarrassed. So the Iranians, you know, clamped down on them. They told them, look, the Americans talked to us, and they told them, here's recordings of you communicating with other al-Qaeda members in the Middle East. You better cut it down. And they arrested them, and they put them under stricter house arrest. And, but, you know, the notion that al-Qaeda, ha- I mean, Iran has supplied of al-Qaeda, it was denied, supplied al-Qaeda or offered them weapons or money. It was denied right. to me by those people. So I don't know exactly what happened. But, you know, different sources have told me the same thing. Uh, but you know, they, they spent 10 years, and there are now members of al-Qaeda in Iran. Right. By yeah. the way, al-Qaeda, now these leaders, they don't view Iran in a, in a bad light because they, they told me that they think of Iran as a smarter, much smarter, smarter and more pragmatic, more politically savvy than the Arab states. They said, look, Iran, they know that we are their enemy, but they welcomed us, they kept us, so they avoided, you know, our a confrontation with us. No, no Al-Qaeda targeted Iran, okay? And whenever Iranian officials were detained in Yemen or kidnapped in other Middle Eastern countries, uh, Iran has Al-Qaeda members, she, uh, Iran could negotiate a trade-off between right. the people uh, it has on the uh, in its territory and and its diplomat being kidnapped. On the other hand, the Arab states, you know, you know, were confrontational with Al Qaeda, and they said on behalf of the U.S., not on, not in their interest, you know. And then Al Qaeda t- started targeting the Arab states and Arab regimes. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, that's a really interesting description and and how they view the Iranian regime. Th- this idea that they were used as bargaining chips is definitely has come out. And of course, on this podcast, Sharon interviewed. Uh, the authors of The Exile, which goes into a lot of detail about the degree to which the Iranian regime was ready to cut a deal with the Americans and hand over uh, all these al-Qaeda members, including uh, bin Laden's family members, some of them, in return for the Americans sort of handing over the Mujahideen uh, resistance group in Iraq. And and, uh, it went all the way up, uh, pretty very high up, and the Americans were excited about it. And then when it got to the White House, uh, Cheney and some others uh, rejected it out of hand. And so that was a missed opportunity. Best laid plans. Well, it seems clear why they would release, the administration would release the Iran documents now. But going back to the diary for a minute, what's interesting for me is what what does the U.S. get out of releasing that now? I mean, Ali, what, what is surprising for you about the diary? I mean, how does it portray Osama bin Laden? Or was there something that was very striking about it for you? 
Yeah, I, I was surprised because Osama bin Laden was a normal guy, you know, because in the media he was blown up to be this mastermind, this, you know, overarching architect, you know, a genius. To me, he came across as a normal guy sitting at home talking about Gaddafi, talking about the Saudi regime, talking about the Egyptian regime, just a normal talk. You know, he wasn't a genius. So when I took this point to other Al to other former Al Qaeda now, they became former Al Qaeda, but who were affiliated with Bin Laden. They said, "Look, Bin Laden," and I mentioned that in an article in Al Jazeera, and they said, "Look, Bin Laden was not a religious scholar. He was no genius. He was not an ideologue. This was a millionaire." who committed himself to the cause of al-Jihad, uh, and he committed himself, and he wanted to do it. You know, he was a pious, he was religious, you know, but he was not necessarily this, you know, scholarly uh, thinker or strategic thinker, as I described him uh, not to be in my article. So, and people rallied around him because of his stature. You know, he's, he's Saudi, he left wealth. Uh, he left his family to live a life, you know, of hardship in Afghanistan and in Pakistan in order to serve, you know, his committed values, you know, whatever they might be. But obviously it was his religion. And in, in, in his diary, and I mentioned that in a piece, he, he explained why he became anti-West. He was, he said, you know, in Saudi Arabia, everybody was religious. He was religious. The environment in the country, he was committed. So he went to uh, Britain when he was 13. One point he went for treatment, but he thought the West was immoral, was, you know, denigrating. It was a decadent West. Obviously, he was talking about the social life. When you compare the West to Saudi Arabia, and this was in 1969, Britain and London. So he thought, okay, these people are loose. You know, they probably wear in shorts. They probably, you know, let their hair down, you know, but they kiss each other, you know, that kind of thing. These things are, you know, in 1969, even in, in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, it's still not very common to be in a public place or public space. So, and he thought after that, you know, you know, no religious or committed person should go to the West. So he said, I never went to the West after that. So that was interesting to me. So he committed himself to be anti-Western from a, from a social you know, value perspective, you know, he never looked at democracy and freedom lacking in his country and still lacking today in Saudi Arabia or, or any part of the Arab world. He never looked at, the, at many freedoms, you know, being given to the public in, in those Western countries and the values, you know, but he looked only the social aspect and, and of these values and he decided to take a stance against the West. And of course, that was fueled by many other factors. You know, Dating back to um, the Obama administration with the release of the documents and continuing through the Trump administration, there's, of course, been the desire to take down bin Laden to say, you know, there was porn in this collection, sort of making fun of the Disney films. Um, and to some extent, perhaps the release of this diary trying to sort of take him down plays into that. Has the release of these documents, do you think, changed the image of bin Laden in the Arab world? Well, look, in Arab world, there was no problem about the image of bin Laden. I think the image of bin Laden was problematic in the West because in the West, the media, by and large, the Western media, they made him look like, you know, this, you know, grand mastermind who orchestrated all these things. But the truth was very different in the Arab world. You know, Al-Qaeda was decentralized organization. You know, you know, Al-Qaeda in Yemen, Al-Qaeda, they all have emirs and lieutenants. You know, they only had to do is a pledge allegiance to bin Laden and to the ideas of bin Laden, which were the ideas of Al-Qaeda. 
which is to spread the Islamic ideology, the political ideology of, of creating a, the caliphate on Islamic rule, you know, God's rule on earth, you know, that's what they wanted to do or uh, implement. So all you have to do, like Zarqawi, Zarqawi was a practical man. He was a, a hardened, you know, a criminal before he became a hardened jihadist, you know, and he went to Iraq and he was, a, you know, he went to Afghanistan in the 80s and participated in the jihad. Then he moved to Iraq. But this, you know, Zarqawi established his own organization, and only later on, in a, in a couple of years, he pledged allegiance to Bin Laden. So there was no structure that, you know, Bin Laden is a CEO and everybody is follow his orders. So in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, at least in the Arab world, I know there was no problem, you know, uh, for the as far as the image of Bin Laden or what was Al Qaeda all about. But only in the West, because the media were not, you know, digging more. Uh, into Al Qaeda and its roots, and how the people, you know, around it, changed things around in, t- in terms of, you know, how they perceived it, you know. But um, so, you know, uh, like I said, it was no problem in Arab world. These these doctors did not change anything. Well, following on with that theme, a few months ago, we had on the podcast the authors of The Exile, um, the stunning inside story of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in flight, where they look at Al-Qaeda and bin Laden the years after 9-11. And towards the end, they conclude that especially as the Islamic State crumbles, that they predict, I think it's fair to say, right down, an emergence of Al-Qaeda. Do you see that, Ali? Is that something that you see happening? An emergence of Al-Qaeda? Re-emergence? re-emergence. I think Al-Qaeda, I, I spoke to many uh, people who were formerly associated with Al-Qaeda or people who were jihadists in the Salafist world in the region. And it's not going to be re-emerging the way it was before. Al-Qaeda is its this metamorphosis of Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda it will live on as an idea, you know. Bin Laden, will live, he will live on as an inspirational a, a person, a guy who, you know, eventually took the United States head on and attacked the United States right there. So, and he, many people will just pledge allegiance to that uh, idea of Al-Qaeda and declare jihad. So Al-Qaeda will remain as a DNA, as a, as a part of the DNA in many jihadist group, but it will not reconstitute itself as an Al-Qaeda in a strong authoritarian dictatorial states in the Middle East. Whenever you see a failed state, you know, like Bin Laden said, you know, whenever there's a failed state and chaos, we, we will be able to spread the ideas of Al-Qaeda and as, uh, ideas of Islam the way he sees it, of course. And I, this was told to me, obviously, uh, in addition by another jihadist, a very ideological person, and I think uh, this was published in The Guardian a few years back, uh, that he said, we strive, you know, we thrive on chaos. You know, whenever there is a state is crumbling, you know, this is our environment to work in because the state is not against us. They can't attack us. They can't, you know, target us anymore or put us in prison because it's chaos. It's it's a failing of a state. So unless you, you see this sort of environment that would that where Al-Qaeda will thrive, it's very hard to see Al-Qaeda thrive in strong authoritarian state or democratic state. I don't want to say that I'm encouraging the Arab world to be dictatorial authoritarian. But with a democracy and freedoms and economic prosperity, I think it's very hard to find any fertile ground for any kind of extremist ideology to take root in, uh, in, in these kind of political environments. 
But also going back to the diary and what you wrote about it, it feels very much that at least bin Laden, when there was chaos, um, you know, in Yemen, in Libya, he didn't really seem to understand what was going on. You know, I think you said you mentioned he predicted the fall of the Saudi Arabian regime within six months. He didn't seem to have a good underlying grasp of the events that were propelling things forward. Is that fair to say? Yes, it's very true. Bin Laden was like everybody else's. It was surprised. He was surprised just like the Arab regimes were surprised by the Arab Spring. That's why, you know, his diary was it was a comment, commentary on the events. He was not the prime mover or driver of these events, nor Al-Qaeda. But, you know, and he mentioned, you know, in Saudi Arabia, it will take six months to fall, but I would prefer that Jordan falls first. You know, I don't know what he's doing for us first, because Best maybe the northern plans. border. <laughs> yes. And he said, and you know, interestingly, he said, you know, Sudan, you know, I, I've heard he write, he, I've heard that Sudanese are, you know, rising up. But Sudanese are docile people, you know, they're not prone to revolutions and all that stuff. So he, he was, you know, so stereotyping the Arab regimes. And, and in Yemen, of course, his origin from Yemen. He's Saudi, but, you know, his roots are from Yemen, uh, were from Yemen. And he said, you know, Yemen, it's a different case. I think we have to work in Yemen. I think he was referring to the Yemenis are backwards, you know. So he said, well, at least we need six months to re-educate the Yemenis or raise their awareness, as he said it, in order to bring them up to the level of revolution. And he said, we'll take us six months to bring the Yemenis up to the level of uprising. <laughs> but he said, we could expedite the revolution there if we at Al-Qaeda assassinate, you know, uh, the uh, president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who's still in the field. He's still playing around, you know, in Yemen. He hasn't gone anywhere. So you could tell that bin Laden was far off the mark, you know, as far as what happened in the Arab world at the beginning of 2011, and still chaos is still there. Al-Qaeda is nowhere to be found as a viable organization that was able to do these things. And it's clear it doesn't have any support or deep support within the Arab public. You know, the last thing they think about is bringing al-Qaeda. And you see what happened with ISIS, obviously. Why do you think bin Laden wrote this diary? I mean, was it for his followers eventually, for himself? What was the purpose of it? I think uh, bin Laden wrote it for history. Uh, He wanted to record something for history about what's going on in the region because he saw that moment, 2011, the Arab Spring was a harbinger of change. And he wanted to influence that chain at one point. That's why he was referring, he was extensively talking about Libya and how Gaddafi was attacking. And and he had high hopes for Libya because Libya was close to Europe, you know, and he mentioned Gaddafi's speeches and he was the West, how they, you know, were hypocritical about Gaddafi. Um, So, and I think he meant that it it will eventually be his last say about comment about what's, what's going on in the region and it, he has to say something, obviously, on the, what's going on. The, you know, the events were changing the region. So, but also I want to mention uh, one thing here about the United States on September 11. I think bin Laden, he, atta- he did not attack the Arab regimes first. And I mentioned that in my article. Because he viewed the United States as the source of all evil in the region. The United States supports the Saudi regime, the Jordan regime, all the Arab regimes that Al-Qaeda, you know, feel and think that these regimes are un-Islamic, illegal, illegitimate. So instead of attacking them first, in other words, why attacking the junior partners, you know, and leave the senior partner, the CEO or the head of the company, you know, intact because they could replace them with people like them. So he decided to attack the United States and he called it, you know, a, you know cut off the head of the snake. And then the tail, it will die. 
So the tail meaning the Arab countries of the Arab regimes. So that was his plan as explained by his diary and many other documents, of course, in this CIA release. So that was his plan. Was he surprised by then the, you know, the following events? Yes, <laughs> they were on the run. Trust me. You know, even even I talked to people last week before I wrote this piece, you know, so they were shocked. You know, a couple of years ago, maybe three, four years ago, I talked to a guy. I wrote an article about it, too, at the time, uh, that he was there uh, when the planning of September 11. He said September 11 was not even a secret in Afghanistan at the time, before it happened. And uh, Mullah Omar was against it. You know, but Bin Laden hid that information from him. Very few people were, you know, pro-attacking the United States. When, you know, that uh, was Atif, uh, it was Zawahiri and Bin Laden and others, you know. But they did not expect the swift response of the United States. And I don't think they, they thought the Twin Towers would fall, you know, to be so dramatic and so tragic that the United States and the whole world will support them to go ahead and, you know, top of their Taliban regime and hunt for al-Qaeda. So it was unexpected uh, for them. And they thought, they always thought the U.S. was weak, okay? And the, they viewed the U.S., through the prism of the Soviet Union in, in the 80s in Afghanistan, that this superpower is so decadent, so corrupt, so authoritarian against the American people. Always, you know, and he mentions Fox News, by the way, that, you know, American people, you know, forced to watch Fox News. It is, it is fun to read, to be honest with me. I read it two, three times. So, and he talks about, as if, I mean, he's wrong in many counts, by the way. So he doesn't understand America. So, um, so I mean, you know, and they were shocked, and that's why he he instructed his son, your name is from now on, on is Ahmad Khan, you travel to this, you go to this country or that country, and instruct his followers, his followers spread all over the place, but mainly went to Iran. So Al-Qaeda was, you know, in collapse, it was in flight, it was dismantled, you know, right after September 11, with the beginning of the U.S. onslaught in Afghanistan, the war there, that destroyed them eventually as, you know, as a... As a as, as a solid group, as, as an entity, but of course it remained till today as a DNA, you know, throughout the region and maybe some elements, of course. There are some people still pledge allegiance to Zawahiri and Al-Qaeda, but by and large, I think they are, they have been dissipated in the region uh, as a viable entity. Dan, going back to the actual release of the documents, looking at it as sort of a strategic move for the Trump administration, somewhat, I mean, did this achieve what they wanted? I think it's too early to say. I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, one thing is, too, that Congress was pushing CIA now for some time, uh, even before the, um, Trump was elected, to release these documents. So there's kind of been a back and forth on that. And the CIA agreed under Obama administration they would do this. So it's kind of coming in these steps. Um, you know, clearly the first material that they released after the bin Laden raid was definitely to puncture uh, the myth and the image of bin Laden that, that uh, we've been talking about and some of the videos they released to make him look weak and pathetic and irrelevant and not 10 feet tall. In a way, this is not getting traction. I don't see in the U.S. media in terms of this Iran connection to uh, al-Qaeda or link. Other things in Washington have been overshadowing that. Um, but so, it's always been a story, and we've talked about this before, yes. that was sort of overshadowed going back to when you first wrote about it. That's right. I, I, yes. Uh, many moons ago, I was in Iran, 
and a senior official uh, in the regime, uh, you know, confirmed to me what uh, had been circulating out in some uh, Arab media that that they had some very big fish in Al Qaeda, and that they were ready to bargain, use them as bargaining chips. They were telling me that, uh, however, to to cut a deal. There would have to be quid pro quo, and the Americans would need to let the Iranians get their hands on these uh, Mujahideen Kalk uh, uh, rebels uh, that they've been fighting for so long. And what I didn't realize at the time was how high up that went and how serious that discussion became uh, with Ryan Crocker in Geneva, very senior officials, hearing this idea from the Iranians, you know, we're going to give you these very senior people if you just uh, do your part. What's interesting is is if that had come out at the time, that would be kind of damning because the Bush administration had an opportunity to get their hands on uh, quite an important bunch of people. Uh, and as and as Ali said, right, there, there's still some very senior figures there, and that's also account, uh, recounted in the exile. It is interesting how there's always this kind of mystery surrounding al-Qaeda, for better or for worse, in the West especially, right? You know, how, what, where are they? How strong are they? You know, is, is the ghost of bin Laden going to come back and get us, right? And so uh, the exile, you know, uh, has a more kind of dark uh, interpretation that it's morphed and evolved. It's not the organization bin Laden ran all those years ago in Afghanistan. But as, as, uh, as you were saying, Ali, this DNA has spread a little bit. And it's morphed into this militant group in Syria that has a lot of foot soldiers. They have, you know, extremists that are some, somehow you can call them al-Qaeda in Yemen, I think. Um, right. So, so it's kind of like maybe a cancer or a disease that keeps kind of evolving and adapting. And wherever there is, as, as we said, wherever there's this chaos, wherever there's this instability, like in Yemen, like in Syria, they, they kind of moves in, it kind of grows. It's this parasite I think it's much harder now. It was easier for the CIA and the U.S. to fight it. Uh, it was this very centralized organization. We kind of knew where they were. We knew where to bomb them to some degree. Now, you know, who are you fighting? What are you fighting? It's, uh, it's hard to put your finger on it. Ali, last question to you. You know, 470,000 pages of these new releases is quite a bit. You've tackled the diary. You're looking at the Iran connection. What else is there that you're just sort of looking at? I'm assuming there's still a lot of material you haven't yet had the chance to go through and report out. What next? Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, work to, to be done there. You know, there's some redundancies there. There's some, you know, issues like, you know, fatwas or or legal opinion by Muslim scholars that authorizes suicide bombing that Bilal was reading and, you know, back and forth correspondence. But, you know, I'm really interested, you know, because, you know, I've spoken to some CIA people, former CIA you know about it. This is an interest for transparency, obviously, but also for people to study what went on. This, you know, war and terror that started off after after September 11 was it really a war on terror? And from, to look at it from the other side, from a perspective of the people who were, you know, the other side of, the, of this war, Al Qaeda and its affiliates, and, and those are in its orbit. Um, so what I'm, you know, really looking on is, you know, how you know Al Qaeda is going. You know, forward based on its history. For example, Al Zawahir is still intact. You know, I know in Syria, for example, uh, you know Al Nusra is no longer officially and uh, wholeheartedly, uh, according to some uh, you know people who told me, uh, disengaged from Al Qaeda and no longer want to be Al Qaeda. That to dismay some hardcore Al Qaeda members. 
who wanted to be in Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda might reconstitute itself of some sort in, as a small groups, you know, like as part of the DNA, as loyalty to Al-Qaeda. They will still be around. So to study these documents, I think it will help researchers and people like me, journalists, who want to write on it in the future, to, to figure out, you know, where to, where to investigate, you know, how to understand Al-Qaeda today in 2017 or 18, you know, its roots, it's back to trace its origins, trace its DNA through the documents to how it started in Afghanistan and what bin Laden was thinking. Because bin Laden now, you know, when you study the documents, you will study the inspirations for the new groups, you know, because the new groups will study the history of Al-Qaeda, how bin Laden used these things, you know, how Al-Qaeda treated this issue or that issue. So they will use that as a precedent, you know, as you know, in U.S. You know, law uses a precedent. So they will use that as a precedent. So to study the future of terrorism, you have to study the documents, the history of terrorism through the documents as one venue of studying the new phenomenon of terrorism. Obviously, with the cybersecurity, it's totally different uh, issue right there. But to study the classical terrorism, you know, Al-Qaeda, classical terrorism, you have to go through the documents and other documents and speak to other people. So I think it's important for us to study the documents more in depth uh, in order to uh, really uh, write on the future. Absolutely. And um, thank you, Ali. Thanks, Dan. For those interested in following the bin Laden documents, I encourage everyone to look at Ali Yunus's work on Al Jazeera English. His latest article on the release of documents is called CIA Secret Diary, offers insight into bin Laden's mind. ER listeners, again, we love hearing from you. So if you have episode ideas, you can write us ER podcast at foreignpolicy.com. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.